Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There always seem to be calls to expand the national park system, and those calls always spur a number of questions. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Why does the national park system need to be expanded? What sites might be considered for expansion? Can we even afford to expand the system? After all, as the traveler frequently points out, the National Park Service doesn't have the resources in human capital or financial capital to properly manage the park units it has. There have been a number of stories recently in other news outlets about adding new national parks, but some of those simply point to existing units that are not officially called national parks and why they should be renamed as national parks. But is that really expanding the park system or is it answering local Chamber of Commerce calls to rename the parks for economic benefit? Today we're going to dive into this topic with Elaine Leslie, who back in 2017, as Chief of Biological Resources for the National Park Service, contributed to the National Park Service System Plan charged with envisioning the growth of the national park system. Also in the conversation is Michael Kellett, who has spent roughly 40 years advocating for national parks, wilderness, national forests, free-flowing rivers, and imperiled wildlife. Michael also is the co-founder and executive director of the New England-based conservation group Restore the North Woods. In that role, he is director of the group's new National Parks Campaign, which is building a grassroots movement for new national parks across the country. We'll be back in a minute with Elaine and Michael. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, Elaine and Michael. Thank you. Thank you for Glad having us. So let's jump right into this topic. Michael, why do we need to expand the national park system? Well, um, I, I've been thinking about this for a long time because it, it, I, I see it as sort of a, I mean, I love national parks. Everybody loves parks and they're beautiful and so forth. But I really see it as, in a way, as a problem-solving approach to things because we have at least two mega problems facing the planet. We've got climate change, we've got bi loss of biodiversity, but really number three is the impacts of these things on humans. And so it just ha so happens that national parks address all three of those things because protecting land and water and uh, stores carbon, it mitigates the climate 
it's a natu natural infrastructure to, to buffer against storms, et cetera. Biodiversity, you know, the Yellowstone, the first national park is, is arguably the, the greatest uh, wildlife preserve on the, in the continental US, I would say it probably is, um, and one of the one greatest on the planet. But also we've got, there are biodiversity hotspots that national, national park, if they weren't national parks, they would not be protected today. The species would have gone extinct. And also national parks uh, protect, can protect large pieces of land, uh, intact lands that are connected, which is critical for wildlife. And then for people, everyone loves national parks. Everyone knows that they're beautiful and great places to go. Um, so you almost don't have to make that argument. But the, the key is that to me, that people living in large uh, population centers, especially in the East, really have very few large national parks. So there's a huge, and so those people are traveling far and wide to go to national parks. So again, that's uh, people need, and we now know science has shown that, that nature is important for public health, mental health and physical health. It's not just a nice place to go. It really is good for you to go to natural areas. But can't the argument be made that, you know, there are plenty of natural areas to go to outside of the national park system? I mean, we've got the national forest system. You've got uh, the Bureau of Land Management lands. You've got some incredible state parks out there. I mean, back east, you've got Adirondack State Park. Don't these places serve much the same role as, quote, unquote, national parks? Uh, well, they can. Uh, the problem is in Adirondack Park and Baxter Park in Maine, there are a few places like that, but most of these areas are not permanently protected. And in national forests, especially we're watching as they're, uh, they've been logging more and more places in Indiana, Hoosier National Forest in Indiana, the Shawnee National Forest in Illinois, they've got, they're doing major new logging projects in Vermont, the Green Mountains. So I would argue that these lands are actually not protected for the future, like national parks, which are protected uh, in perpetuity for the uh, unimpaired. So I would argue these are these areas are de facto, some of them offering the same things, but they're not going to in the future if we don't protect them. And the best way to do that is, is either wilderness, which is not really viable for most places in the East because there aren't very many large areas left that are roadless, or national parks, which and, uh, and also national parks can restore degraded landscapes. And we have a lot of those in the eastern half of the United States. You know, Elaine, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on those questions. But also, you participated in the 2017 planning purpose for visualizing how the park system could grow. Can, can the National Park Service handle more units? I mean, did the topic of how to fund that growth come up in that 2017 study? Sure, it did, and, and that study under Director Jarvis at the time uh, put together wide spread of expertise and skills throughout the National Park Service from superintendent to natural and cultural resource uh, specialists, managers of all sorts, planning folks, and that was a big topic that we didn't feel that plan because <laughs> what happens after a new administration comes in, something may sit on the shelf for God knows how long, right? which it sort of has. Um, it was to offer guidance and a way or a path forward for consideration of new national park units, whether uh, a national park 
or a seashore or a heritage area or whatever the case may be, you'll notice in that plan that there are not specifics as to what we felt should be included because we didn't feel we could talk about that because that's almost lobbying for a particular place. And so uh, we steered clear of that, but you'll notice criteria. And for me, that criteria is, is a good start. I mean, it's, it's based, a lot of the natural resource stuff is based on science. A lot of the cultural resources is based on uh, the databases they have, um, what's important out there, what's available out there. Availability is clearly uh, a key, um, but funding has always been an issue <laughs> with this agency as with others. If you go all the way back to, you know, go back to Kennedy and his fight for national parks and national seashores, it was, you know, Udall going to Kennedy and Johnson and saying, you know, we know we don't have the money for this, but if we don't do this now, even with $1 budgeted, which has happened in the past, when a new national park unit comes on board, Congress gives you a buck and then hopefully later you get the rest. But, you know, if, if you don't protect and preserve some of these places right now, there is an urgency because they will be gone. And, and I thought it was interesting about Michael talking about, you know, forest service areas and extraction and how if you go back to Redwoods and how it was established, you know, there wasn't <laughs> large tracts of Redwoods left because of extraction. And so luckily it did get some smaller tracts preserved at the time in the early 60s. And then what happened as soon as it was designated, retaliation extraction happened <laughs> from the private logging industries. And so, you know, there are a suite of places right now. You know, the Park Service is never going to have enough money <laughs> unless somebody on high comes down and, and uh, manna for heaven drops down on the Park Service. The critical piece to think about is what are we about to lose? What will our future generations never have access to because it's going to be gone? And I think I agree with Michael on everything he said about linked to human health. We know that's a fact, that people need to get outdoors. We also know that there are biodiversity hotspots that truly are protected right now under the park system, but there are many, many that are not. There are places we have completely ignored, like in the South, in the Southeast, I would say. And so I, I don't think you can put money as the forefront issue for not adding to the national park system. We certainly want parks, park units to be fully funded now, and they're not. But I don't think that should be the prohibition from adding new units to the system. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, in that um, 2017 report, it makes the argument that the system should be expanded to capture aspects of America, both natural resources and cultural, that are missing from the system today. You know, what surprised me in that report was the statement that said, of the primary terrestrial ecosystems in the United States, 111 are completely unrepresented in the national park system, and 392 ecosystems are underrepresented in the park system. Are there really more than 100 terrestrial ecosystems that are not represented in the park system? 
Yeah, that's true. And that's because, uh, so if you look at the databases that were provided to this team working on the system, which was largely the inventory and monitoring team, other geospatial groups that put together information on, um, especially USGS, they were they were a big part of, of looking at the data on this. That That's very true. But I think that aside, you know, if you just go and look at that data and say, okay, we need to go find this small tract of land or whatever that is that we need to add to the system because it's not represented. I think you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the American experience. You're missing the point of climate change, fragmentation, you know, human health and connectivity. You're missing the stories we need to tell and those places we need to keep. So for me, one very important place working on with Dr. Bill Finch and you know, Wilson at the time was that Mobile Tensaw watershed, Alabama River, and the diversities of that watershed. Now that we have the Black Belt heritage at the top as sort of a node, and there's four of engineer lands that can certainly be transferred to the National Park Service, this is a vast watershed that has Indigenous history, very important connection to multiple tribes, cultural and natural wonders, I would say. It has a Civil War battlefield that's never been, um, you know, it's untouched, really, and it needs protection. There are national natural landmarks in there. Mound people were in there on some of the islands. But the biodiversity of this place is more and more amazing than any place I've seen in the lower 48. And that area <laughs> we have basically ignored. Does it meet all the criteria as mentioned in that report? I, you'd have to go through, you know, because I don't think the inventories are even complete there. There was a resource study done in the 70s, which is sort of the beginning of getting things rolling for the system. You know how many species have gone gone away since then or been threatened or endangered since the 70s? It's quite a few. And so we updated that um, in mid-2000s and found that there are more resources and more biodiversity there than anywhere else in the lower 48. So I don't think, uh, like I said, I think that plan is simply guidance, you know, some recommendations for a path forward. But don't be so strict as to look at, okay, here's 1% of this that's not represented. We need to go find that and make sure we get that into the system. I think you need to look at it more holistically. No, I, I get that. But, but you know, that number jumps out, 111 terrestrial ecosystems that are not represented in the national park system. And I think I saw a reference to grasslands. Um, I know back in the 30s and, and going on up into the 60s, there were there were efforts to create a National Plains National Park um, in Kansas or Nebraska, um, and they failed to um, gain traction. But we, we've got portions of tall grass prairie and short grass prairie represented in the national park system in places like tall grass prairie national preserve. Are there other terrestrial ecosystem types that you can point to that are missing from the park system? I think, frankly, to be honest, I think the, the prairie grasslands all the prairie grasslands is is the major one for me, especially when you're looking at at biodiversity and you're looking at corridors from Canada to Mexico, 
Um, I just think that the grasslands is the major one that really needs some expansion and looking at seriously. And yes, they did fail to get that into the system at the time, and it would have been a nice chunk. But now we have these tiny little representations that, you know, certainly um, I, I wouldn't say they're actually adding to the overall um, point of having grasslands, right? But also, I think what we need to do is look at these areas that need restoration. Um, if you remember America's Best Idea by Ken Burns and, and Terry Tempest William, I, I think it was chapter four, I, I'm not re remembering exactly, but restoration is one of the most important things that the National Park Service should do. And so I think going back and looking at what are these areas that are not represented that may not be vast enough, but are there areas that we could help restore and bring back those? So I think you really have to look at the data associated with, with those different, because it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot. And I think in that plan, there is a link to where the data comes from and what the data is, so you can have a look at that. But um, because off the top of my head, I can't, I, I can't say, but I would say that prairies, prairies and grasslands in general are, are critical. We're talking today about uh, whether the national park system should be expanded and how it can be expanded. Uh, one of our guests is Michael Kellett, who is um, leading the new national parks campaign. We're going to take a short break and we're going to press Michael to see if he can fill in some of the blanks on where new national parks need to go. Uh, we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So, Michael, as um, Elaine and I were talking about um, 111 terrestrial ecosystems that are not represented in the uh, national park system today, and you know another 392 ecosystems that are underrepresented. Um, I'm guessing as a part of your new National Parks campaign, you've, you've looked at, you're familiar with this 2017 report and, and can fill in some of the blanks? Yeah, uh, yes, uh, and it is, um, as Elaine said, it's, it's sort of mind boggling to focus down on ecosystems like that. And what, what, I, what we did do though, is look at ecoregions, which the EPA has laid out, they're type three ecoregions. And 
if you start looking at, and that's a pretty large scale, but still it, it starts to zero in on where there are big gaps. And it's pretty much the entire East other than some of the Appalachians, but those, even there, it's not, you know, Great, Great Smoky Mountain National Park is not big enough to, to have wolves and the whole slew of wildlife even, but there are opportunities to expand it. We could expand it to include the Nantahala and the Pisgah and part of the Cherokee National Forests. Shenandoah National Park could be expanded to include the uh, George Washington and Jefferson National Forests, which are adjacent. And these are, speaking of biodiversity hotspots, this, this central and southern Appalachians are, is considered one of the top hotspots in the United States for biodiversity. But then you got read areas like the Driftless area, in uh, which is in uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa, and there's uh, Effigy Mounds National Monument, which is a small area that's not that's a you know obviously it's a cultural area mainly, but but there are actually public lands existing in sprawled around in different places along rivers and so forth. There's a National Wildlife Refuge on the Mississippi. You could start patching that together into a multi-unit national park. And in fact, I think in the East, that's what we're talking about. If we want, if we want any national parks beyond what we've got in the East, we really need to look, be more, we need to stop focusing on monumental landscapes and saying, unless it's a giant mountain or a huge canyon, or a vast expanse, it just doesn't make it as a national park. I mean, in Europe, they have national parks. I think we need that are that are none of those things, but they're super important. And I think that's what we need to think about expanding the our vision of what a national park is to focus. And if we start, especially if we focus on access for humans as well as uh, restoration of landscapes and ecosystems that have been degraded in the East, there's no other way to do it unless we talk about multi-unit, knitting pieces together, restoring integrity. And that's what, uh, if you start looking at it that way, actually there are a lot of possibilities. And that's why, that, so we came up with a list of the top 100 proposed new national parks. We got, there's one, at least one in every state and in Puerto Rico, two in Puerto Rico. And it's, and most of these are existing public lands we're talking about to start with. Now, you, you would end up with, in some, uh, a number of pieces that would that should be knitted together. But we know that what happens is once you create a national park, there's an interest in people to build on that if there's a need. Like Acadia National Park, as you know, that was created completely from donated private lands. And then... Uh, Roxanne Quimby, who bought land that turned into the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, she bought s several pieces to add to that because there was already a park to add to. So I think success breeds more success in land protection in these things. Now, um, you know, there are plenty of large landscapes out there that um, are not necessarily under the National Park Service, National Park System, that um, perhaps make logical choices that perhaps could be quickly done. I mean, in, in southwestern Wyoming, you have the Red Desert, uh, which is a phenomenal area, um, an ecosystem that may not be representative completely in the national park system. Um, that is managed by the Bureau of Land Management, which is part of the Interior Department. So you might say, well, you know, we could just um, redesignate it rather quickly. 
But then you've got places like uh, the Wind River Mountains in, in Wyoming also um, that's part of the National Forest Service. Um, you've got the Shawnee National Forest that people say should be a Shawnee National Park and Preserve. There's the um, range of light movement out in California to take um, the Sierra Nevada um, National Forest, I believe, and, and hand it over to the Park Service, um, which would not only protect a large swath of land between Yosemite and Kings Canyon National Park, but preserve some valuable wildlife corridors. But those units are under the U.S. Forest Service, which is part of the Agriculture Department. Are those easy switches or would there be battles? I, I, I can think of some uh, Congress folks from California who would not want to see a national forest sent over to the National Park Service. Well, uh, as you know, um, a large number of our existing national parks were designated uh, from lands that were originally forest reserves or national forests or Bureau of Land Management lands. And so, and every single one of them, the agency opposed it. Well, that's too bad. There, there, are, there are lands and the public needs to say what we want them to be. And I think right now, most people think that, especially national forests, they think that they're like national parks. And, you know, we've got the Green Mountain National Forest, which people have treated like a national park in Vermont, because they weren't logging all that much for the last couple decades, they assume that it's protected from logging. Well, actually, they're going to do major league logging. You know, they've already started it. And so I think the public and the people are really unhappy about that. In Indiana, the Hoosier National Forest, I just went to a meeting of the, of the Heartwood uh, network of groups all around the, the middle part of the country, and they are up in arms about this logging that's going on. There's a place called Land Between the Lakes that, that straddles Kentucky and Tennessee, which is which is uh, under the administration of the U.S. Forest Service. They're doing major league logging, horrible stuff there. It ought to be a national park. So I think what we need to do is say, look, you know, if we if you drew a map today starting from scratch with all these public lands, how would you what, how would you designate these lands? I don't think you would designate any lands in the East for logging and other extractive use. It's crazy. And when you're talking about uh, climate change, you've got these, these ancient forests in the Pacific Northwest or recovering forests that, that are super biodiverse and super have large amounts of um, biomass and carbon. And if you look at who's administering these, it's mostly the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, both of which log those forests. It's, and there was a study done by the Wilderness Society about a decade ago where they looked at carbon intensity. And along with the Tongass National Forest in Alaska, which also, also ought to be a national park, these Pacific Northwest forests all are at the top of the list. So why aren't we protecting those forests? And and they ought to be national. We ought to designate them as national parks. We could there's Mount Hood. There's we could expand um, uh, Mount St Helens, which is a small national monument. It can include some large areas of the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, which has been nuked by the Forest Service. It needs to be restored. You got you know Olympic National Park could be expanded to take in national forests. And, and the Willamette National Forest, which has been hammered over the years, could be, you could have a large restoration area. There's a proposed national monument on, that would cover part of that. But so anyway, the po point is, if you start looking at it through the lens of what we need versus who 
administers these lands, it starts to make more sense to think about a different age. You know, the Forest Service is not designed for to preserve climate, biodiversity, and offer public recreation. That's not what they were. They were designed to to for forestry, and that's what they do. And or or uh, other extractive uses like the Allegheny National Forest in Pennsylvania has been heavily fracked as well as logged and turned into a, a, a tree farm. So that that ought to be a national park too. But Michael, if you take all these places out of um, the national forest system, I guess you would remove them from forest product generation. So where do we get our two by fours from? Where did the plywood come from? Are there enough private forest reserves um, managed by uh, um, companies like Willamette to get us by? Oh yeah, only about 4% of timber in the US comes from public lands, federal lands. And, and the reality is that most of the logging that goes on is publicly subsidized because this is, this is not the prime timber that people are looking for. So here the public is paying to log our forests. And that's part of the issue of can we afford new national parks? If you transferred lands from especially the Forest Service, they have a hefty budget. And that budget could be transferred over with the land to the National Park Service. And in fact, it would be, I, we, I looked at the, net, for example, the White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire and in Maine. If you compare that with similar sized national parks, they have a bigger budget than the national parks do because of their logging program, which, which is very expensive. So it re, then it starts to look like, okay, wait a minute, you know, is it, how much would it really cost? And in the, the top 100 areas we looked at, only about 4%. 5% is, is not already public land. Most of it federal, some of it state land. Uh, same thing, they have a budget for those lands. 78 million acres would come from the national forests. Yeah, the way we're, we're looking at 100, about 160 million acres added, new lands added to the national park system, which would triple the park system. That would be all new. That's not just redesignating existing areas as you talk about, which is fine, but that doesn't really add to the system. Right, right. Um, now, I mentioned that uh, your organization is behind the new National Parks campaign. Has that campaign kicked off yet? Is there a website people can go to to better understand the com campaign, what it's trying to accomplish? There's a website that's in cyberspace that's waiting to be launched uh, later this year, once, it, once we've put all the pieces in place, um, but we're going to be getting it up and running this year. And I, part of it has been talking to groups around the country who are really, uh, as I say, it's not just in Indiana, it's across the country. There are citizens who are just really, you know, they're, they know that climate change and biodiversity are huge problems and they're looking around, they're seeing, hey, we have this public land that we own and they're, they're not being protected accordingly. Uh, and then once they find out, many times they don't think a national park is even a possibility. They think, oh, well, we're not, this is not the Grand Canyon, this is not Yellowstone or whatever. And, but, you know, once we start talking about possibilities, then they go, oh, okay, tell us more. So I, I, I really sense that there's a potential wave of new park support from the public. And that's what it would take. You're, we're not going to just go to the Forest Service and say, please transfer your lands to the National Park Service, they're not going to want to do that. And 
And, you know, they, but these agencies have some biologists, they have soil people, whatever. So, you know, it's very possible a number of the, their staff could be transferred to the Park Service to help make it happen. But that's a very, it's very complicated when you get, you know, as Elaine says, it, it, you know, to get to the nuts and bolts of how you do it gets much more complicated. Yeah. Elaine, you were chief of natural resources or, or chief of biological resources uh, for the National Park Service um, before you retired. How important is it or how necessary is it for wildlife to say, transfer the Wind River Range to the National Park Service or the um, Sierra Nevada um, National Forest or Sierra National Forest to the Park Service? I mean, you know, these are large swaths of land that are habitat. You know, I guess we could point to a, a recent uh, 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling on um, grizzly bear habitat in the, the Wind Rivers and the Green River uh, allotment for, for grazing and that the the ruling was that the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Forest Service didn't appropriately consider the impact of the take of 72 grizzly bears. Is it is it that vital to transfer these lands to the Park Service to benefit species such as grizzly bears, wolves, and, and less charismatic um, megafauna? I think I'd go back to the system plan and what it didn't do. It didn't talk about uh, functionality and process. You know, there, there are a lot of things that we could do right now. My wish is that the Department of the Interior and USDA talk to each other and work collaboratively. I think there, while it's great to add new places to the system, there's this functionality component that's equally as important. So look at the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And surrounded by national forest lands, a lot of deep uh, fragmentation is going on there. Uh, new developments that threaten the migration of animals. Look what's happening to bison and wolves out there and grizzly bears. You know, if the Forest Service would work with the Department of Interior to enhance the greater Yellowstone ecosystem as a fully protected area within and outside the park boundaries, that is critical. Um, the same thing for migration generally of uh, large game animals and maybe some mesocarmars from Yosemite to the Sierras, the Sequoia. That's, that's an, an excellent example of the Forest Service and the part, Department of Interior working together. Will they? <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of faith in that. Um, I think the importance of outside pressure from folks like MPCA and um, Center for Biodiversity on what's happening around places like Yellowstone is so important right now. But under America the Beautiful Act, this could be not the low hanging fruit of changing a national monument to a park status, but go into the nitty gritty and get some of these things done that really, really matter. I mean, we talk about Yellowstone as this iconic, world renowned, most important place for wildlife in the world, in the US, and yet we cannot protect what happens in regards to migration. So between the Forest Service working with Department of Interior, either stop the grazing leases, stop this cattle issue that's going on with brucellosis and protect the lands outside the park so that you can have these greater migrations of elk, deer, wolves distributing, grizzly bears, all of that, that is critical to the survival of Yellowstone right now. 
It's also critical for the department and USDA to figure out how to designate a federal corridor. We don't have that. We have Path of the Pronghorns, which has some state protections and a few other things, but I think that's what we saw this winter with the decimation of that herd from Grand Tetons to Pinedale. That is not fully protected. It's oil and gas, it's development, it's uh, all of that sprawl happening that's impacting those animals. If we had a federal corridor protection, then we could save these ancient pathways and migrations. So I think some of these processes, functionality are equally as important as adding to the system. How do we protect what's already in our parks? And I don't think we're doing the best job possible. So is it easy to transfer lands? Is it critical to get Wind River Range into the National Park Service? I don't think it's as critical as holding the Forest Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service and the rest of the Department of Interior accountable for what happens within those boundaries of that designated area. Just bringing up Yellowstone is really appropriate because there's a good example. I have zero faith in the Forest Service getting it together anytime soon. And we don't have time. We've got, we're, the time's, time's ticking for climate change, biodiversity laws. I'm tired of dealing with the bureaucracy Put you know just guarding their own turf, um, and and time's ticking. So I mean the simple solution for Yellowstone is a Greater Yellowstone National Park, twelve point eight million acres of public land, national forest, and BLM land that would produce that would include that that oil and gas land in the Upper Green River on the BLM lands at least could be included in that, but also the Forest Service lands. So there'd be no more hunting for wolves when they, they wouldn't, because it would, well, there would be, but the park would be so much bigger. There would really be a lot of space for wolves. Bison would be protected, wolverines, uh, you name it. All, all these species that now leave the park and are blown away, the grizzly bears um, would be protected. And the thing is, of course, there'd be huge pushback from these agencies, but everybody knows Yellowstone. Everybody loves Yellowstone. People in New York City would rally around, I believe, the idea of a bit greater Yellowstone National Park if they understood what's at stake. They've heard about bison. They've heard about wolves. And so we need to really be thinking big here. This is, you know, big problems need big solutions, and we don't have much time to do it. And what, what better play, thing to rally people around than national parks? As we know, national parks next to the U.S. Postal Service, National Park Service is consistently the, the most popular public agency. Through all the, you know, over the years, people love national parks. So they can understand what it is. They love them. We, we can say, here's what we need to do. Here's a new park. You can help to do it. What about marine waters, um, <laughs> Elaine? You know, we've got a lot of coral disease going on out there. We've got a, a lot of uh, motorized craft that are impacting uh, marine resources. On the West Coast, we have one national seashore. How does expansion of the park system address those issues? Yeah, I, I think that's one area that has a tendency to be left out of a lot of conversations. Um, under Obama, obviously, we got some protections there, recently got some protections in, in outside of Maine. But I think, so I like to, I'm harping on this corridor. 
idea, right? Baja to Bering from, you know, Maine to, yeah. to the tip of Florida. There are these uh, corridors that are also these ancient pathways for cetaceans. I mean, and, and look what's happening to right whales and humpback whales up and down the East Coast. When are we going to give them the same protections um, that we want to afford to other terrestrial right. species, right? And so I think really diving in and looking at these areas that are critical for biodiversity, pathways, et cetera, you can still do that and have fishing and those industries out there in protected manners. But I think these shipping corridors need to be addressed or you're going to not have certain species of whales and other cetaceans out there. Um, we don't even know the impacts to, to sharks or other species, both east or west coast. So I think marine needs vital protections. Seashores, I'd, I'm, I'd have to do a little more research, but uh, some of the work I've done with folks like Dave Hallett, the superintendent at Cape Hatteras, you know, he's he's fighting the good fight of trying to figure out, you know, I got houses falling into the ocean. We've got climate change. We've got sea level rise. We've got Jamestown and, and Chesapeake Bay level sea rise and inundation into a place where, you know, that's where our democracy started. And, and look what's happening there. They're losing artifacts. They're losing our history because we cannot figure out. We can go to the moon. We can try to get to Mars, but we can't figure out how to protect these natural and cultural resources. And so the preservation, it goes back to exactly what Michael is saying. We got to look big. It's got to be, if there's a seashore out there that could be protected, it has to be big enough to be able to handle this climate change impacts to turtles, to colonial nesting birds, to all those things, because we're losing it. We're losing it. And if we don't figure this out soon, it's gone. And my kids aren't going to see sea turtles nesting at Cape Canaveral in the future if we continue down this path. So I think looking at marine corridors, looking at what seashores can be protected in perpetuity is also very important. All of this is critical, right? <laughs> All of it is critical. We're losing it. We have to act as soon as possible. This administration can do a lot of these things and can get the ball rolling and plant the seeds and they need to take action. We've, we've haven't got much time left in this particular administration. Hopefully we can continue, but we'll have to see what happens. We're talking today about uh, whether the national park system should be expanded and how it should be expanded. Um, if it can be expanded, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. 
You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Okay, we're back with Elaine Leslie, who was uh, Chief of Biological Resources for the National Park Service before she retired, and Michael Kellett, a longtime proponent for um, natural wilderness, natural parks, free-flowing rivers, imperiled wildlife, and on and on and on. His group, uh, Restore the North Woods, is a primary player in a new campaign, the new National Parks Campaign. Michael, Elaine, we've talked a lot about natural places, uh, mountains, rivers, seashores, what about missing cultural and historic aspects that should be part of the, the National Park Service, National Park System? The, the 2017 um, National Park Service System Plan talked about missing cultural aspects um, that should be added down the road. You know, perhaps something um, discussing the role of the Civilian Conservation Corps, maybe even the history of conservation in this country, um, the environmental ethic of indigenous cultures. What do you think of those topics as part of the national park system? Obviously, I think those are very important aspects of the national park system. And I think there are stories to be told. Another urgent thing is there are folks who have these stories in their heads and their families. And if we don't get out there and get that information, we're going to lose that information as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of gaps and and uh, I think we discover new gaps all the time. And and I kind of go back to this uh, Alabama River, Mobile, Tensaw area where you're looking at Africatown and those folks and their stories and the Clotilda, which now most people have heard about the discovery of the, uh, the Clotilda in the, in the Mobile Delta. And that's all part of that natural and cultural history. Indigenous tribes, I mean, indigenous folks have so many stories to be told that we haven't even started. I think if you look at Okmulgee and that area recently. In Georgia. Yes, in Georgia was a monument, now a new national park, but the surrounding area and expansion and the tribes, Muscogee, et cetera, coming out of that and saying, here's our story. And now that's expanded to this. Mobile area and this Mobile Tensaw watershed area and the history along there with the Muscogee. Um, And then all of the African American stories that we have not told. Um, And those are across the country and not just in the East. And so I think we really need to dive in. And I, I hope that the Director for Cultural Resources and the National Park Service gets enough funding to be able to do that research and put those sites out there as uh, potential for park service and preservation because it's it's so important. The what's interesting when I in looking at our top to come up with a hundred new national parks, which was not hard at all actually, it was paring it down that was really difficult. But um, especially in the east, you have to be um, imaginative to find th- th- sometimes things right under your no. So, for example, Walden Woods. Why is that not a national park? 
it, it's yes. an inner it's it, people come I, I you know I live nearby I go I drive by there I see people from obviously from all over the world who are not American they're obviously not dressed like Americans some of them look are Asian and so forth and in Japan, Henry David Thoreau is a huge thing, and a lot of people come from Japan here to to visit Walden Pond. Um, and that's not just, and that's actually an important natural area because it's near Boston. It's also important for recreation, but it's got all kinds of history. Not just Henry David Thoreau, for example, Brister's Hill is the name of a hill in in Walden Woods. It's named after Brister Freeman, a freed slave. Who who basically just set up shop and set up a farm. He couldn't really own land at the time. I think he did maybe at first, and he sort of lost, you know. But they people knew it, and they just they let him do his thing. And and Thoreau writes about him in Walden. He really admired him, and there also were a number of other freed slave homes in Walden Woods, for example. There's a you know there's Native American history in the in the area. So a lot of places when you start protecting natural areas, you you find stories about people all the way back. Cape Cod is another example that has uh, you know Thoreau wrote about it. But there's you've also got the marine portion. You could add we could create a Cape Cod National Park that adds Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is not as strictly protected as a national park area would be. There's also a, a Cape Cod Bay State re Reserves, and there's an offshore state reserve. That could all be one. Let's talk about right whales. That's important right whale habitat, for example. But also, it, there's there's uh, the there's a lot of native interest in the area and history. And there are there are people right now who live in the area from tribes who are interested in getting their history out more. We we do create small historic parks, which is important, but uh, you know we also ought to look at them in the whole landscape that people lived in because this, there's this false narrative that national parks are sort of anti-people and don't you know they're locked up and you know blah blah blah. But the reality they is they open it up. The more we learn, it opens it up to not only nature protection but but teaching ourselves about our history and our cultures. And in getting people out, so um, I think the two are inter. Uh, we didn't specifically go for historic areas because we didn't consider ourselves to be the world's expert on that. But there are obvious places in what we were looking at. Yeah, and you can go down the coast down to the Chesapeake uh, Bay, and there's efforts to uh, create a possibly Chesapeake Bay National Recreation Area. And of course, you have lots of indigenous history there. You've got. Um, you know, the, the, the watermen um, who made a, a living around the, the Chesapeake Bay. And so, yeah, there are personal stories um, that go along with those. Um, you were going to add something, Elaine? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think I think we were all very grateful and sort of about time when the Harriet Tubman um, right. sites came along, came into being. I mean, that that's a perfect example of this inextricably linked um, natural and cultural features of an MPS unit. And there's more of those. And I go back to East, go back to the Hudson. We have some park units along the Hudson, the upper Hudson, but I mean, Pete Seeger's house, <laughs> you know, not that I've talked to the family or anything, but I mean, here's a, here is a figure who was instrumental <laughs> in the peace movement and the folk scene and, and a river keeper. 
brought attention to the environmental health of the Hudson. You know, that's that's a really good example of linking the two and and maybe the the cabin you know, is not up for that and the family, but, you know, that's a good example. And there's lots of those there. Plus there's an indigenous component to that area, but that environmental health and what you were talking about, the history of, not the history of the National Park Service, but how we came into, you know, adding units and how we thought about that. And and I just want to put a plug in for an excellent book that every Department of Interior and U.S. Forest Service manager should read and, and, and others who are interested in park units and refuges is Doug Brinkley's, and most people know him from CNN and the presidential historian, but his latest book, Silent Spring Restoration or Rejuvenation, I believe it's called, excellent, excellent history um, from like Eisenhower, through maybe Clinton, of how National Park came into being and the role of the secretary. I mean, if you look at Udall and and how he had the ear of the president is how we got a lot of these units. Like I said, Kennedy, Johnson, and others. But do we have that kind of presence today? Or are we walking on eggshells if you're the Secretary of Interior or, or of Agriculture um, and, and including Congress in this? But they really did the hard fight. I keep going back to low-hanging fruit, changing a monument to park status, you know, those sort of things. But they fought hard for a lot of what we have today. And, and I guess I'd just like to see us as a nation fighting as hard today for these protected places. Well, let me ask you this. The, the, the 27 report, 2017 report, talks about, you know, what's missing history of U.S. diplomacy, issues of uh, the United Nations, the influence of treaties, the changing role of the United States in the world community, the Prohibition era, music and the arts, all these things are, there are gaps in American history that are not covered by the national park system. With all these different areas that aren't protected and interpreted, is there a need for a national department of history? You know, is the park service the proper custodian of these properties and topics? I'll answer. And then I'd love to hear from Michael. I, I think certainly um, it would have to be um, something newly created and organized and strategic about how they do it. And obviously try to get funding for that. Um, I'm not sure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily put it under the Department of Education, which some folks may think it should lie, um, because the Park Service does this better than anyone else. We tell stories of this nation and our role in the world better than anyone else. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I, I I think the Park Service does a great job, and they need more resources. And, and historic uh, interpretation and preservation, of course, is expensive. And so that, but that's a different issue. I think, inter- but in terms of capability, um, I I and, and I think it's artificially separating history from from nature. I think is a bad idea because we really they really are they're intertwined. I mean, our you know the history of our landscape is a history of the people who shaped the landscape and then protected the landscape. And so why separate the two? And the other interesting thing is that 
Uh, if you think about it, people think that, oh, well, you know, Republicans are now more conservative than they used to be. Isn't this a partisan thing? But if you look at recent, especially historical parks, there've been there's been strong Republican support. Like I believe Medgar Evers' home, National Historic Site, was that bill was I believe introduced by Republican members of Congress. And I think it's because the public wanted this, and they they got on board and said, "Wow, this is a good thing." So I think that that in a way, it's a way to open up bipartisan support is to start talking about our history and our culture. Um, and then that leads to nature protection and recreation and so forth. That New River Gorge National Park and Preserve, as you know, was that was the Republicans the, in Congress and, and Joe Manchin, a conservative Democrat, supported it. I was going to say so, Joe Manchin's not yet a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with history, it's the same thing as with natural areas. We ought to be thinking big. Not you know, a lot of these areas, National Trust for Historic Preservation has their what eleven most endangered areas. These we're losing these areas. A lot of these important places um, that could be protected. It probably wouldn't cost that much in the bigger scheme of things. It wouldn't be that expensive to save these places. We ought to be doing that just like natural areas. Just a couple bombers. Elaine, um, we're going to have to wrap this up, and I'm, I'm going to throw this last question at you because of your, your background with the National Park Service. If Congress agreed to this plan, what would the National Park Service hierarchy think of it? Would they say, the National oh my. Park Service hierarchy today think of this plan? If they all of a sudden had 100 new units in the National Park System. It's, it's hard to tell. <laughs> if if the current department and park service would be 100% behind this because they know they don't have the money and they know it takes management and staff and all of those kind of things. So if I were advising the National Park Service and Department of Interior, I would say put together, um, you know, they just recently had, a, Biden recently had a summit, you know, kind of sort of uh, patterned after this conservation summit that Kennedy had back in the day when they decided strategically how to put forth new areas for conservation. But I would say put together a team that can prioritize what we need and what those places are and get on the stick. Because right now there's every organization, every coalition has a list right? Michael has a list of 100. And, and so how do you prioritize something like that? But you can't have 20 or 30 lists floating to the department and think that they're seriously going to consider every single list and everything on that list. So I think you need a bipartisan group to come in of the scientists and the cultural folks, of non-agency folks for the most part, and put together some priorities that we can start on right now and that take hold, no matter what the administration is, for the next, you know, six, 10 years out and get moving on that prioritized list. Um, everybody wants to have new park units for the most part, but again, it has to be manageable and we have to take care of those places we have now. So it's really a catch 22, isn't it? Um, but that would be my advice is really put together a team, an advisory team, and make it FACA, you know, so that you're you're not violating any laws and say, here's here's a list. 
You know, you mentioned the Red Desert. Under treasured landscapes, under the beginning of the Obama administration, there was a, a large list of scientists who had the Red Desert on a list. They had Kissimmee. Kissimmee River got, got protected to some degree. In you Florida. know, there was a long list then. And so, you know, I just think we have to be more strategic than we're being right now. So to that point, and, and we're way over time, but this is an interesting discussion. To that point, um, you know, usually Congress calls for uh, a resource survey, resource study of prospective units of the park system. Are there any out there that would uh, move the, the needle in the direction that uh, you're talking about? Um, I need to look at the new list. I think it just came out that I saw that they forwarded. Um, to Congress to get approved, but there's a lot that have been in the works for a very long time that haven't been acted on. Um, just like I was talking about that mobile tensile one, that was from the 70s, and and we updated it in in 2016, 2017, something like that. It's ready to move. We, you know, there's people who are ready to move on that. It's just trying to get it pushed through and supported by the by the agency and then have Congress move on it. So I'm sure there's there's several out there um, that can add to this discussion of America the Beautiful and um, you know, increase our national park system. Michael, do you have any champions in Congress? We have not really overtly talked to members of Congress yet, but I'm. we've got our eyes on various members who are obviously interested in national parks. I, I think we're, we're going to find a lot more interest than we would have thought once we, uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg. Right now, there are no bills, no major bills that would, you know, they, there has been support for a number of bills over time. And there was a uh, omnibus bill under Obama that created a few new national park areas. Um, so I, what we'd like to do is put together uh, sort of a, a Phil Burton, who was a former congressman from California, kind of park barrel bill, as they called it, where, where you lo basically line up a bunch of areas and members of Congress who are already interested in new parks and where you got a base of support and, and put those together in an omnibus bill to get the ball rolling. And I think what would happen is other members in other parts of the country would go, whoa, here's a train that may be leaving the station. I have an area in my district, what, you know, so um, I, I really think, and then I, th and but as Elaine says, I think we also need the park service from that end talking about their priorities. And I think there's gonna be a lot of lineup of, of what the park service already knows and what the public wants and what is politically possible. And maybe that's, what ends up being the first list of what happens. And we got to do this quickly. We got, you know, there's 30 by 30, the, the so-called 30 by 30 is protecting 30% of the planet by 2030 and of only about 12 to 13% of the US is, is permanently protected. So national parks would, if you added the hundred that we've got, it would up that to 20%, which is still not enough, but it would be a bit, but that's the kind of scale we need to be thinking on if we really are serious about this. Okay, that was Michael Kellett, the uh, co-founder and executive director of the New England-based conservation group, Restore the North Woods. Uh, they're working on a new national parks campaign. And Elaine Leslie, the former chief of biological resources for the National Park Service. Thanks so much today for your thoughts on how to expand the national park system, and we'll see what moves forward. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kurt.
That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have thoughts on expanding the national park system, pro or con, please comment on the post about this podcast on nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Park's Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.